Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier today, my co-host Kathleen Hayes sat down with Jim Bullard. He is the president of the and chief executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Uh, she spoke with him at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium in Wyoming. And uh, Mr. Bullard discussed the current economy, also a potential rethink in the way that the Federal Reserve is approaching monetary policy. Also, we talked about negative interest rates. We asked him about negative interest rates. I'm not a fan of negative rates. I don't think they're likely in the U.S. because we have other things that we we have other firepower that we can use if if necessary. So I, I I'm not uh, I'm not thinking in terms of negative rates. I'm anxious to hear what uh, this is an international conference here, so we're going to hear a lot about uh, the experience overseas, and I'm a, I'm anxious to hear what they have to say. You know what I've been thinking about negative rates? It's really a tax on the banking system. Uh, because the rate of return that they get on their uh, on their deposits at the Fed, uh, if you push that into into negative territory, then you're really you're really taxing them. This was the whole idea of paying interest on reserves over the last the debate over the last thirty years. The banks always argued that they couldn't get interest on reserves and that this created a dead asset and then uh, they were this is costing them and they said they should at least be able to get the market rate of return on that on holding those reserves and uh, so finally they got interest on reserves uh, in 2008 in the United States in other countries they had it before but in the United States we never had it till 2008 and now people start to say well instead of paying you the market rate we're gonna we're gonna put it down in the negative territory so that that is could be interpreted as a tax on the banking system, and then the banking system has to pass that on to somebody. Who are they going to pass it on to? Either the shareholders in terms of profits, uh, the uh, borrowers in terms of rates that the, the borrowers from the bank can get, or uh, to the depositors of the bank uh, and start paying them negative rates. And uh, so... Any way you look at it, the you know if you think about negative rates as a tax on the banking system, that doesn't sound very stimulative when you describe it that way, and maybe that's why uh, we've had very mixed results in Europe and and Japan. A lot of critics out there uh, of the Fed, too many Fed speakers at once. Uh, what's being communicated? But I think really at the heart of it, one of the most fundamental criticisms is this. Look, you've, you've tried all these, keeping rates low indefinitely, you've tried bond purchases, and the economy is still mired in, in slow growth. And businesses 
don't want to invest. Some people argue that, it, in fact, it's the Fed policy, it's uncertainty about it, it's the fact that rates are so low they're going to have to move up more at some point. Why go into any long-term investment that it is one of the big factors holding back investment, which has been such a weak engine of growth right now? How do you answer those critics, and how do you analyze that? Well, on the idea that there's too much talk about the Fed, I mean, one thing, one idea I've always had is that the uh, private sector has probably a thousand people that talk about the Fed all day, every day around the world. It's a 24-hour-a-day talk about the Fed policy uh, world. And the Fed only has a handful of people that uh, that can respond. So I felt like it's important for the policymakers themselves to talk about all kinds of issues that come up uh, about uh, Fed policy, all legitimate issues. And, and we're talking about a macro economy, which is a big, complicated object. So there are going to be all kinds of issues all the time, and that's the way it's going to be. So I feel, felt it was very important for... Uh, the Fed to be involved in this debate. Otherwise, you're letting the private sector entities drive the debate, and they have they're taking positions. They you know they have positions in the markets and and they're making bets and stuff like that. I don't mind them commenting, but you know I don't think you want them driving policy. So anyway, so that's one thought on it. That's uh, one of the the best defenses I've heard of that. Right, the the the, the voice of the thousands versus the voice of the few. But again, on this question then of uncertainty weak spending, businesses that don't want to step up, and the Fed, some saying, being at the at the heart of the matter. They have distorted and disrupted sort of the natural working of the financial system and the, what drives investments, and that that is one of the problems right now. I think the, the threat to increase the policy rate, say 200 basis points over the next two years or, or a little bit longer, uh, that has been looming out there as a threat, has not been a good description of what we're actually doing. And so I have felt like that's distorting investment decisions and distorting market pricing in various ways. We're in the middle of the second year after QE ended. So we had all of 2015, we moved once at the very end of the year. We've had all of 2016 and we haven't moved so far this year and markets have us only moving once probably by the end of the year. So. We're just not moving at a pace. You know, moving once a year is not really normalization. That's really not a normalization program. That's kind of nothing. So I think you should have you should have a better description of what's actually going on than what we've got. And that's why I came with this other uh, this other conception of what's going on. But I do think it's a. Uh, you can make a case that's distorting investment decisions. Earlier today, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, in her remarks, she left open the door for a Federal Reserve rate increase at its September 20 to 21st policy meeting. But she also hedged her comments in ways that give the bank, well, an economic data-dependent out, if indeed the economic data is less than sanguine. Earlier today, also my co-host, uh, Kathleen Hayes spoke with Jim Bullard, president and chief executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and uh, she asked whether there was a need for a Federal Reserve rethink on monetary policy uh, and wondered if that is what is actually happening. I think there is uh, something of a rethink going on, uh, and I think it is because inflation has surprised to the low side. Uh, you would have thought, I would have thought five years ago, if you told me where we are today, with a balance sheet over four trillion, and a uh, policy rate still 
uh, you know, under 50 basis points, I would have said, oh, you must be, you know, you must have 5% inflation or something like that. And that hasn't turned out to be the case. So, uh, so I think there is a rethink about, about models, uh, Phillips curve in particular, which has long been at the heart of a lot of thinking about the economy. Those relationships don't seem to be very good um, over the last several years. Uh, the economy seems to behave differently at extremely low interest rates. Uh, you've got the Japanese example sitting out there. Uh, you've got the double dip recession in Europe. So there's uh, over the last five years. So you've got a lot, uh, a lot going on to think about and to adjust to in the world of monetary policy, which I to me, I find it fascinating because it's an endlessly fascinating uh, subject, uh, but it's, you know, it's not easy. Jim, what do you think about inflation, this persistently low inflation, even though central banks around the world have thrown so much at it, low to negative rates, endless bond purchases, buying corporate bonds, you know, buying ETFs, you know, is, do you get the feeling that low inflation is somewhat incurable? Well, I doubt that. Uh, I've thought about giving a, a speech about uh, inflation around the world. Uh, let's check out Venezuela. Uh, let's check out Argentina. Uh, let's check out uh, you know other countries that have had uh, very high inflation rates. So they seem to have been able to break out of the mold of uh, the low inflation environment globally. Uh, now, usually when that happens, there are other problems in the country, and both of those countries have uh, a political upheaval of various kinds. And um, usually governments that, uh, that, you know, want or need revenue from other sources other than their tax base. And, and so, uh, it's, it's definite, they're showing the way though. It's definitely still possible <laughs> to have inflation. Uh, I'm not sure we really want to go down that kind of a route. Uh, so the inflation, you know, when we say we want to hit 2% inflation, we want to hit it through, you know, very conventional uh, methods. And, and uh, that seems to not be working quite as well as it did in the past. Globally, in the last FOMC minutes, the Fed was concerned about a number of different areas. Remember from China? Uh, debt to GDP, exchange rate instability, European banks. Let's start with China then. In a nutshell, are, are you worried? What, what, is you, what are you and your, your team seeing? And how much does that influence the Fed's next decision on an interest rate increase? I don't put as much weight on these global factors as other people. So let me give you my argument. Um, people say that because the world is more globalized, now we're going to start paying attention to the shock in uh, a remote province of China or uh, something happens in Latin America or something like that. That is not what economic theory says. Economic theory says if you've got the flexible exchange rates uh, between countries, as we do between Japan, Europe, and the U.S., which are the main blocks and, and, and most of the other main blocks, then... Then uh, when there's a shock in one part of the world, the, the exchange rate is supposed to move and that's supposed to adjust uh, uh, most of, you know, offset most of the shock. And that then you can conduct independent monetary policies in the various countries. And this is a way that you stabilize all the economies of the various countries. And I think on the whole, that's still the right model uh, to have in mind. If you look at some of the things that have been talked about over the last year, let's say we were at Jackson Hole last year, you had the Chinese uh, devaluation and the big 
you know, scare about that. I said that I did not think it was that big of a deal. I turned out to be right about that. Um, then we came into January, and again, people brought up uh, China. Something's going on in China. I said it wasn't that big of a deal. I was right about that again. We got Brexit. People say, oh, my God, if they vote no on Brexit, that's going to be a huge deal. They did vote no. I don't see it. So you're, people are overemphasizing how much this can really come back to a big economy like the U.S. It certainly causes, these things have caused global financial market volatility, but that volatility tends to settle down after a while uh, because the fundamentals don't really change. And, uh, you know, something like Brexit, how is a trade agreement between the U.K. and the continent going to going to come back to affect actual real things in the US through trade relationships or something like that. All the estimates are that those effects are extremely small. So it's very important for the UK and it's kind of important for uh, the continent. It's important for the European project, but it's not, no, it's not important for the US. In terms of uh, risks of keeping rates too low for too long, uh, people who are concerned say, look, by the time you can see the excesses or some sort of bubble where people have gone, and we know there's been a lot of reaching for yield, right? Uh, th it's too late. What? How do you approach that aspect? Because you've got your regime, you said, oh, probably not going to have to raise rates much at all. Meantime, the, the skeptics would say, yeah, Jim, you and your team with your view are going to let some problems fester and we're going to have to deal them deal with them later and, it, and it's not going to be fun. Yeah. Um, so I'll be right up front about this. Our framework does not address the issue of asset price bubbles. So that's just something that is not included. However, if you look at most forecasting, typical forecasting models, uh, FRB US or uh, Meyer and Associates or Macroeconomic Advisors or uh, uh, GDP Now or whatever you want to look at, those kinds of things, they're not talking about asset price bubbles. They, they just have sort of mechanical relationships in the economy. They try to track the business cycle and on they go. So I think you want to think about these things in judgmental terms uh, where you're making a, a judgment uh, separate from the model about how big a problem is asset valuation and uh, do we, would we or would we not want to use monetary policy to try to control that. This is a very important issue for monetary policy. It has been the most important issue over the last uh, 20 years. We had the tech bubble and we had the housing bubble and there was, you know, and if we have another bubble, there will again be a uh, debate about what to do about it. So this is, none of this is in my framework. So that just has to be handled uh, separately. But right now, I, I, think, uh, I think you can make a case that um, you know, we're certainly not in any kind of bubble territory the way we were with the housing bubble or the way we were with the tech bubble. Uh, maybe, maybe somebody can make a case, but uh, also I think the Fed has beefed up its tracking of this kind of stuff a lot. Uh, we do get a financial stability report uh, quarterly. Uh, we look at all kinds of nooks and crannies in uh, financial markets and try to see if there's anything that's uh, catching, uh, that you know, that looks troublesome. So I think our radar is much better than it, than it used to be. 
But uh, if we do get into a bubble situation, the committee's going to have to make a judgment about what to do about it, and we'll have to face that. That was Jim Bullard. He is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, speaking with, of course, my co-host, Kathleen Hayes, at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he was speaking in the context of remarks from Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, signaling growing conviction that the central bank will raise short-term interest rates in the weeks or the months ahead. Of course, their policy meeting is set for September the 20th and the 21st, uh, but perhaps even as important is the Federal Reserve's decision hinging on whether the labor market is showing steady gains. The uh, Labor Department will report on September the 2nd about the labor conditions in the United States in August. Job gains have been averaging about 190000 a month over the past three months. The bond market, a little bit of a sell-off today. The 10-year down 16.30 seconds with a yield of 1.62%. And the 30-year bond down 19.30 seconds with a yield of 2.29%. This is Taking Stock. I'm Pim Fox. My co-host, Kathleen Hayes. This is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.